1: Looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
2: U.S., or whether it's in the beautiful hill country of Texas, or the beautiful pastoral areas of upstate New York, or whether the hustle and bustle of the mountainous areas of northern Georgia. I have to tell you, this is a beautiful place in which we live. If you talk to those that are evolutionists, even them that are struggling with uh, how does this all fit together, somewhere along the line you're still going to find even evolutionists that have to scratch their heads and think in terms that it has to be something of a very unique intelligent designer, even though they may not admit that it's God, but something had to put this all together. And then you move that thinking into Christianity and We who have chosen to study this and we've come to the conclusion that there really is an intelligent designer and that would be God, that we know that God has a beautiful plan and he puts it all together. And how beautiful that we get to enjoy it all when we travel and see it. If you've gone on any of our beautiful hikes, you've probably seen the beautiful area of of Hawaii as you look out over the ocean. Those of you that have uh, trekked your way to a waterfall and maybe even gone swimming, you've seen how beautiful that is. And so you know that God had to be a planner behind all of this. But it's not just about his creation, he also has a plan for the people that he loves so much, which would be you and me. And he loves us so deeply, he loves us tremendously, and he does have a plan for our life. In fact, we know in scripture that we're in God's mind before we were in our mother's womb, and even on the drawing board, he designed us. Some of, of you have been made male, and others have been made female, and so God has designed you. But it wasn't just so that you would become a snowflake in the blizzard of humanity, or even in the snowflake of the blizzard of history. But that God does have a plan for all of our lives. Now, sometimes when we hear that, we think, well, that must mean we need to discover if God wants us to be the proverbial butcher, baker, candlestick maker. And I'm sure there's going to be an element of what God would like us to do with our lives and our careers and that type of thing as we fit into that. But it's much broader than that. There are definite wills of God for our life that he has. And so what I want to do is take uh, today in a couple of weeks to really unpack that, because I believe that if God does have a plan for our life, and he does, that wouldn't it seem reasonable that we ought to discover what that plan is? And then once we discover that will for our life, wouldn't it be wise then to do that will, no matter the cost? And that's usually what I give to young people that are beginning their journey on discovering of who they are, and why they're here, and where they're going to go. If you're not really sure, then you have to start with the premise that God has a plan for your life because you're born, you're here, you have a purpose. And secondly, that he wants to reveal that to you, and he will, and he does, and you'll be able to discover it. And once you do, then to do that plan no matter the cost. Now when you hear that, a lot of people will end with that because it sounds so man-centered. Yeah, God has a will for my life, and I can do this. Yippee! And it's all about us. But ultimately, whatever will that God has for our life, and there is it's ultimately to bring the greatest glory and praise to him because all of us have this so that he would get all the glory and all the praise. So now, here we are. How do we discover God's will? Well, we're going to begin with a very, very popular verse, and it's popular because it seems to wrap it all up into one little section of two verses on discovering God's will. But I'd like to tell you that that is a good place to begin. In fact, it is the foundation of where we might begin to discover God's will. But that's not the end of it. Scripture has thirty-three thousand verses, and of course, you've heard me say many times, and you will hear me say it again: to know God's will is to know God's word. We get that. But next week, Lord willing, and if I complete today's message on time and get you out of here in time for this wonderful lunch we have, I'm going to begin giving you what I would call at least six different areas. So that you can discover where does God say this is his will for my life in scripture. And he is crystal clear to reveal this is God's will for our life. And he actually says that. And we're going to go on a little bit of a scripture journey to find out what they are. At the end of it, you're going to hear the last point, which will be then you can discover whether you're to be that proverbial butcher, baker, candlestick maker. So instead of jumping to that, let's begin where we should begin. So I hope you brought your Bibles today, and if you did, I'd like you to open them to Romans chapter 12, Romans 12. If you came without a Bible, that's all right. You can scoot next to someone who has one. You could reach under the chair in front of you or or your chair, pick out a Bible. You can also look at it on the screen. You can also follow along in the worship notes that were provided for you. So if you have your Bibles, again, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And I think it would be really neat for us to do something we don't do very often here. But that would be to read this passage of Scripture together out loud. It's very short. But it's very, very powerful. So would you join with me? And you can follow along maybe with the verse that's printed there in your notes, all right? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Let's read it together out loud. Let's begin. Paul writes and he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now when you read that, and many of you probably have memorized that passage of Scripture, you need to know that it actually comes with even more power than just those two verses if you find out where it's located in the context of Scripture. So let's go back again for just a moment and let you know that you have the book of Romans. Romans was a letter that Paul wrote to Christians living in Rome, not to the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. It was just the Church of Believers in Rome. It was made up of Gentile believers and Jewish believers as he was writing to them. It is called the Magna Carta of the Faith. There are 16 chapters. We have covered chapters 1 through 11. If I was to divide divide Romans up into sections, you'll notice in your notes that they would begin with the letter S, and it'll help you remember how it goes. And it's a wonderful flow, by the way, because it actually takes us on a journey of spiritual life development. You'll notice that it begins by talking about sin and how depraved we really are. And then it talks about salvation, that no matter how bad we are, and no matter how good we are, we still need God to save us through Christ and by simple faith. And we learn that once we've trusted Christ as Savior, the response ought to be, now that's the word we don't use, sanctify, which really means that we would be set apart for a purpose to bring honor to the Lord. And then we learn how secure we are in the Lord, that once we trust Christ as Savior, we don't keep ourselves a Christian, we don't keep ourselves safe, that he does that for us, so we're secure in Christ. But we also learn that there's a sovereignty with God, that God is sovereign from the beginning to the end, he has a plan, salvation is all a part of that, as well as sanctification, well, now we're beginning chapter 12, and from 12 to 16, we're going to learn as a result of the sin and being saved from it, and now being set apart, securing the Lord, and knowing the sovereignty of God, we are to serve the Lord based on these truths. And so, that's what you're getting. Now, for some of you that are new in your Bible study, you're going to find that generally the epistles, which are really letters that Paul wrote, they begin with what we call doctrine. This is what you're to believe. And then the rest of that one letter or book, this is how you're to behave. So it's what you believe, how you're to behave. Romans is no different. 1 through 11 is what you believe, and 12 through 16 is how to behave. Now, when you read that, sometimes we like to separate that so far apart. This is doctrine. And over here, behave is not doctrine. Technically, they're all together, so I want you to see it as one big composite. True, we need to know what we're to believe, but then out of that comes our behavior. But we really don't have good behavior unless we know what we believe. And we really don't know what we believe properly unless we believe it, and out of it comes a proper behavior. So they both go together and how important that is. Now, again, if you'd like to, I encourage you to go to our website because I'm going to have my entire sermon put on there. And I'm going to go through what we've learned of what we believe in Romans 1 through 11 on it. So you go through kind of a ticking off all the different things of what we've learned of what we should know. And then now we're going to learn in the weeks to come until we finish Romans how we're to behave. And basically, if I could put it into one word, it's the word relationship. A relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with the world, relationship with our enemies, relationship with those who disagree with us, relationship with everyone who's around us. It's dealing with relationships because Christianity is a relational belief system. And so that's what that's talking about. Now, let's talk a little bit about knowing God's will again and how important it is. I titled this series, Taking the Secret Out of Discovering God's Will. And I titled it because I remember times in my life, and maybe similar to your life, that you were faced with a dilemma of a choice of what you were to do. And you might have been at a stage in your life that you perhaps recognized then that, yes, God does have plans, and I do want to honor God, but my struggle is I don't know what I should do in this situation. What is God's will regarding this situation? Some of you, it could have been so simple should I get a a silver car, or should I get a white car, a black car, or a purple car, or whatever? Some of it could have been even more dramatic would be should I marry this person or not get married at all or what should I do with a lifelong relationship. That might have been a struggle that you had. Some of you were in school and now you're having to decide what educational system and and curriculum you're to take to spit you out with a particular degree that will make you marketable in the world of careers that are there and you were just struggling with that. And if you think that I'm different than you, no, I had those times. In fact, I was a little more dramatic than that. I could remember one time I was so just, dis- I don't know what to do. And I said to myself, Lord, why don't you come down from heaven? You spoke to these guys in the Bible. Sit in that chair right now and tell me what I should do. Now, isn't that pretty dramatic? Now, I want you to know, be rest assured, I didn't do that last week. Okay? I did that earlier in my walk with the Lord. But once I discovered these great truths, here's what began to happen. I began to have a greater confidence in the Lord that, you know, He has a plan for my life. And He doesn't make junk. How do I know that? Look at the earth. Look at the wonderful things that He's created all around us. The mountains, the plains, the water, the oceans, the fish, all of His animal kingdom. All of that's beautiful. And besides the way He made you and me as humans, He also has a purpose for us. For even the animals all had purpose in the schematic of what God had to have done. All for His glory. So I wanted His will. So my question to you is, first of all, do you believe there's a God? And if you do, do you believe that he has a plan? And do you believe he has a plan for your life? If you remotely believe that he has a plan for your life, are you at a stage in your life that you would like to discover what it is? Or do you want to wrestle God into your plan? Or are you willing to trust his plan since he doesn't make junk and say, all right, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do? Now, let me remind you of something. If you truly want to do what he wants you to do, and you embrace the biblical principles we're going to learn over the next couple of weeks, don't worry about you having to do something that he wants you to do that you don't want to do. I want you to know that he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, he will get you to desire what he wants you to do. And that's very special because that happens not by you kind of making it happen. It happens supernaturally by him. So trust his word. Trust him to reveal His will to you, then give you the desire to do His will. And one more thing. He will also resource you to accomplish His will. So don't be so fearful thinking that, okay, if He asks me to do that, I may not be able to do that, and I'll be really in a dilemma. How can I do this? How, I won't have all the things necessary to accomplish His will. Once He reveals His will to you, you will have more resources than you'll ever think you have to be able to accomplish what He wants you to accomplish. And I'm going to tell you, when you're on that journey with the Lord, it is exciting, it's thrilling... It's full of joy. There's peace in your life. Everything that you ever wanted, He will provide for you. It is not mysterious. It is not secretive. It's something very easy to discover. And so I hope that all of us together that's hearing this message will go on this journey together so that at the end of it all, we're embracing these principles. We're bringing glory to the Lord, and we are fulfilling His will, His plan. For our lives. Well, let me give you just a few thoughts here from this passage of Scripture, verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12, as we begin our journey here of discovering God's will, taking the secret out of it all. All right, so number one is the principle of salvation. So if you will, follow along in your Bible, and I'm going to kind of pick apart some of the words here because all of them are important. The principle of salvation actually begins by the phrase, therefore, I urge you, brethren, which really means brothers in Scripture, by the mercies of God. Now, sometimes people think that we're all brothers because if you take us back, uh, I guess you would say sociologically, humanity all the way goes back to the first parents, which would be Adam and Eve. And therefore, since they're Adam and Eve, our first parents, that must mean that we're all brothers and sisters. Technically, we're not, according to theology and God and his way of looking at humanity. He says we're all his creation, but we're not all brothers and sisters. In order to have brothers and sisters relationship, we have to have the same father. Adam and Eve did not beget us, did not come together, and we are direct children of them. But we are, by the new birth, a direct child of God. So how we become brothers and sisters in the Lord is when we trust Christ as Savior. It's at that time that we're not only His creation, but we have been born again and we moved into a different relationship. Another relationship. Not creation only, but now we become a son or daughter of the Lord. And when we do then, He is our Father because we've trusted Christ as Savior. So when it says brothers here or brethren, this is very important. This is telling you that if you want to discover God's will for your life, the very first step into discovering that is you need to have God as your Father. And so if there ever was a first will for your life, it would be the will of knowing Christ is your Savior. That is God's will for your life. So if you want to know where is the epicenter of all of this, where is square one, it's going to be you trusting Christ as your Savior. This whole passage that we're going to study is predicated upon the fact that you are a blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ by faith alone. Let's go back to this verse again. He says, I urge you, It really is important because he's saying, not only are you brothers and sisters in Christ, he's not urging them to become a brother and sister in Christ. He's already assuming you are. Now he's urging those that are brothers and sisters in Christ to do something with it, which now I bring that to us. As I would read that, I'm saying, okay, I'm a child of the Lord now. Uh, We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And now he's urging us that by the mercies of God, we would do something to be able to discover God's will. One more time, emphasizing the fact that God has a will for our life. He urges us to do what's necessary to discover that will because it's a good and acceptable and pleasing will for your life and my life. So now, are you feeling the pathos of that urge to really do what's necessary to discover God's will? For me, I'd hate to miss that. I would hate to miss that. Those of you that have ever traveled down the highway, we get so dependent upon our GPS system because we don't want to miss our exit. We don't want to miss getting to our destination safely and on time. So we depend upon that GPS. We don't have to be urged to follow the GPS. Now let me change that. My wife would say that I have to be urged to follow it because sometimes I think I can find it on my own, all right? But let me tell you, God has a plan for your life. And it's a wonderful plan. And he urges us to discover it. But notice it says, by the mercies of God. Now, I thought about that. You have the word therefore and by the mercies of God. So when you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is that therefore, therefore? So in other words, he's building this truth of urging us as brothers and sisters to do something to discover the the will of God. Now, he's urging us to do that, therefore, because of something that came before it. So I pondered that phrase. Therefore, all of this, therefore, now do this. I was wondering, why was that there? So as I went to Scripture, I came to two conclusions, and I think they're both accurate. One is the bigger picture. He is writing to a group of people, and so just basically on what he wrote to the Romans, it would be all of what he said in Romans 1 through the end of chapter 11. Chapter 1 through chapter 11. All of that, therefore, based on what I taught you, this is what I urge you to do, brothers and sisters. Now if I want to be more specific, because it emphasizes the mercies of God, then I would take the last three or four verses of the last chapter of verse 11, those verses right before chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now why am I saying that? Because when the Bible was put together, it was written without chapters and verses, it was hundreds of years later before they decided to put chapters and verses together so that it would be easy for us to find phrases in here and to kind of sense where there would be a break of a thought. But technically it was just one long, we might say, letter without chapters and verses. One long monologue. So in this monologue, he's now to the point that says, Therefore, brethren, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, because he said these other truths. And so let's take it back to the mercies of God. Well, first of all, the mercies of God for salvation is important because it says we're all sinners. Now, some are righteous sinners, and some are depraved, wicked sinners, but we're all sinners. And when God brings forth salvation, he levels what I call the playing field. So it doesn't matter how good you are, you're still not perfect enough to go to heaven. It doesn't matter how bad you are, it still says you're not perfect enough enough to go to heaven so to make it a level playing field I have to make it by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone now listen carefully Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness that saves us it's according to his mercies that saves us now when you're hearing that phrase the mercies of God what's so special about mercy let me try to one more time remind you the difference between grace and mercy grace is getting something We don't deserve. Grace is getting heaven as a free gift. I don't deserve it. God's going to give it to me. That's grace. Something I don't deserve, I get it. Now, what's mercy? Mercy is not getting something that I do deserve. Remember, I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I deserve to suffer eternally the horrible, horrific consequences of my sin. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you deserve to suffer that horrible consequence. My grace says, I'm going to not only keep you from that, but I'm going to give you something far better than that, even though you're a sinner. That's heaven. I, by my mercy, will prevent you from suffering those horrible eternal consequences of it. So I give you my grace and my mercy, and it's found in the person and the work of Christ on the cross. And so he did all of that, demonstrating grace and mercy on the cross. And to us, he says, I want you to receive Christ as your Savior by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So once you've trusted Christ as Savior, based on his mercies to save you, based on his mercies to keep you saved, based on his mercy that you have your entire life for his strength and grace, he says, now I want you to do something with it. So principle number one is important. It's salvation. So I pray that you would humble yourself. We all have. I have. We've done it. We said we're sinners. We don't deserve eternal life. We need a Savior. And you're the only Savior. So we come to you by faith. We're trusting in you as the one who died and rose again. We don't understand all of that. But we do believe you did that for us. That's salvation. That's square one. That's the epicenter. Now we can launch into discovering God's will. Part two. So let's go to number two. The second principle. Once we've done that, it's called the principle of dedication and consecration. Now, Some of you that are hearing this, you might think, well, dedication means I need to be a monk or I need to go into the monastery or I need to go into the ministry or I got to go to seminary or I got to do a lot of other spiritually sounding kind of drippy liturgical stuff. And actually, that's not the case. This was written to a group of people just like you. If I could put you in a time capsule and all of us would go back about 2,000 years and we stepped out of the time capsule and we sat in a room full of people like he's writing, it'd be very much like you. There'd be military people there. There'd be working people there. There'd be mothers there. There'd be separated, divorced people there. There'd be all kinds of people with illnesses and financial issues, struggles with families, same kind of people. And to those people, he didn't say, join a monastery. If you want to discover God's will, go into the ministry. He didn't say that. But he did say this. Look at the verse, present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So I thought that's interesting. Before I ever am willing to do God's will, I have to start by just presenting myself to him. Now, that sometimes could be the most difficult step to take. And that is where you're saying, I don't know what his will is. Why would I want to do it? I don't know if I know it, I don't know if I want to do it. And he's saying, before I reveal that to you, he says, what I want you to do is to have enough trust in me that what I have for you will not only be good for you, but it'll be glory for me. Are you willing to do that? And then you might say, well, Stan, you know, that is a very difficult step for me. So here's my question. How much more difficult is it to trust the Lord to be willing to do his will even though you don't know it exactly yet than it was for you to trust in Christ as your Savior, and yet you weren't there when He died on the cross. You weren't there when He looked at you through those pained eyes, and yet you trusted Him for your salvation. And you believe with all of your heart that when you die here, you're going to be absent from the body and you'll be present with the Lord. If you believe that, if you can trust Him for that, yet you haven't seen it or touched it or smelt it, you believe it because you read it in Scripture and you know the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture, you trusted that, can't you then say, All right, Lord... If I could fall back into your arms for salvation, I can fall back into your arms for your will, and I'm willing to do that. In a sense, that's what we're talking about when it says present yourself unto the Lord, a living sacrifice. But I want to give you three words so that you can really see how it is and really hang yourself on these pegs, all right? Number one, it's voluntary. Voluntary means that he's giving this to you as an urge It is something you need to do, but he will not make you present yourself to him. It's a choice that you get to make. Now, in some translations, it's the word present. Some of you have the translation offer. What you do need to know, whether it's the word present or offer, it has the idea of a once and for all. It's where you're finally saying, all right, Lord, I can trust you as my Savior, but now I'm going to trust you as the Lord of my life. I know you're the Lord as my Savior, but now I'm going to trust you as the Lord, as the one who's going to be my CEO. You're the manager of my life, and I'm willing to do that. I'm presenting myself to you once and for all. Now, this is key, folks. You present yourself once and for all, and then every day we go back and we live up to that presentation that we've given ourselves to the Lord. That's the word offer. One writer said this. It says it's like a reservation. You're like saying, Lord, you have a reservation on my life. I'm like a table. You can come to me anytime you want and ask me to do anything you want me to do. I am yours. I belong to you. Now, you might have done that for salvation, but are you willing to do it for the rest of your life? Why would we do it in one area and then want to take back our life in the other area? If it's so sweet to trust in Christ and have our sins forgiven and enjoy the peace of the Lord then, wouldn't it be nice to have the continued peace of the Lord that we know that every moment of every day we are doing God's will of what he wants us to do. And so it's a voluntary thing. It is a choice. Number two, it's practical. It's a very practical thing. Here it says to give your bodies. Now, why would it say body to the Lord? Now, I know the Lord's got all of us. I get all of that. But he really, when he paid for our sin, he has our spirit, he has our soul. That's our very life.
1: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons. Founder of Make It Clear Ministries, Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible.